Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Maximize Your Influence. This is Steve Olson. Kurt Mortensen is with me. We are locked and loaded with some good information for you today, as well as a question from a listener that we thought was a good one. We wanted to remind everybody, go ahead and send your comments, emails, questions, ideas, derogatory remarks, as Kurt says. Send those to MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Stitcher, on iTunes, on BlackBerry, on Windows Marketplace. All of those places we are available, so we are not hard to find, or just go to MaximizeYourInfluence.com and you can see the blog there, read our quick entries, and listen to the podcasts. Just FYI, we have the comments set to off. Kurt and I aren't really great web programmers. We just don't have the, the first clue what we're doing, do we, Kurt? Yeah, I would put us there kind of in the below mediocre section. Below mediocre. Okay. <laughs> so you heard it from Kurt. We're below mediocre. So if you go to MaximizeYourInfluence.com, you'll see on the little blog entries that the comments are off. And that's not because we're dictators and we don't want to hear from you and we don't value your feedback. But somebody from China really, really wants to sell us Dwight Howard NBA jerseys and other kind of weird spammy stuff that they were always putting up there. And because we are well below mediocre, we haven't figured out how to deal with that yet. And as soon as we do, (laughs) we'll take away the dictatorship. But we're just trying to keep good information on the blog and not have it be a bunch of just crazy spam of who knows what. Correct, Kurt? Yeah, it was going nuts there for a while. We know it's an easy fix, but it was one of those things where it was a 10 to 1 ratio where we're just like, man, let's just turn it off till we do it the right way. Yeah, it's a shame that the spam had to bury the, the good comments. But yeah, apparently it's an easy fix, but when you are below mediocre, not so easy. <laughs> yeah. If you're a WordPress genius, we might be willing to talk to you. You're going to have to come at us with some good persuasion skills. So just email us at MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com. We're talking to a few people because we always want to crank this up to the, the next level for you. So, Kurt. Yeah. It's November. When did that happen? Did you get a lot of trick-or-treaters this year? I got a lot of entitled trick-or-treaters. You know, they just kind of <laughs> grunt and stick the bag out there and a couple of them going... You know, can I have more than one or that's it? And I'm like, you kidding me? Get out of here, you little punks. I know. It's completely changed. I turned the light off about 930 and people were keep knocking on the door and ringing the doorbell. And then I had adults come. No kids. I mean, these were adults that came not dressed up with a bag wanting candy. And I'm thinking, what's my responsibility here? Do I have to do this? Are the people taking for advantage that people are driving their kids up to our section of town and ringing all the doorbells, getting as much candy as they can? I love Halloween. I love the candy, but I was like, really taken back this year. Adults like 20 years old or 40 years old, or what are we talking here? I would say 30s. I mean, we get our batch of college students, which, I mean, that's way on the fence, but now adults without kids are like, really? What's going on? I had no idea. And all they had to do was do the math. You say, if, if you're doing this for three hours and you make X dollars an hour, just take that money and go to Costco and buy yourself your own bag of candy. You'd probably get more. 
Well, that that would require expenditure of money, and there are too many mooches out there to do that. I guess, but it was fun. Went around with the kids, ate a lot of chocolate, uh, scared a lot of people. But again, it is November. That is kind of a strange thing to where, I, whoa, where did that come from? I know, just like that. We've got a pretty tight-knit neighborhood, and you know the kids from the neighborhood when they come to the door. So we've got the outsider candy, and then we've got <laughs> the insider candy. We are, uh, I guess, bigots like that, so... The kids from the neighborhood get a nice big candy bar or something good, and then, yeah, like the the people from the outside, they get the the really bulk, gross candy that discourages them from returning next year. Well, we have two different buckets, too. I think more and more people are doing that. So if they're they're outsiders, they get the black and orange wrapped, whatever it is. We don't even know what it is. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) A Jolly Rancher. Yeah. No, it's just that half of them are wrapped in black and half are wrapped in orange. Have you seen those before? Well, the fact that you don't know what it is means it's perfect outsider candy. It is. No one knows what it is, but everyone's always handing it out, so it must be good. (laughs) (laughs) It must be. My kids are crashing down off the sugar high. We're ready to to attack November, have a crazy, crazy busy month this month. Going to be spending a lot of time in the Bay Area and San Diego working with some clients, and and a turkey day will be upon us, and we'll be talking about how we got fat again. I mean, it's like three months in a row, these holidays, where for a month you go, man, I got fat. <laughs> mm, it's tough. Well, it's a tough stretch to keep fit, especially when you're on the road, and especially with Thanksgiving coming up. Yeah, everybody, it's time to fall off the wagon. You're going to get just buried with great food for the next three months, so just lean into it and fall right off of that wagon. <laughs> Lean into it and just see the belly grow. That's right. See see how far you can go because you will lose weight faster in January that way. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You'll have a bigger percent of weight loss if you gain more. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you're going to be feeling great come third week of January. Wow, I've lost 10 pounds. <laughs> Work, padding the stats. Padding the stats. There we go. Cooking the books. That's right. Well, Kurt, you have a interesting article about uh, incentives, which I think that's just a fancy way to say bribery. But in the high-flying world of Kurt and persuasion and all the academic types, they would call bribery incentives. So you wanted to talk to us about that, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Well, the whole goal, of course, when we talk about persuasion influence is learning to persuade others how they want to be persuaded. That's a huge blunder for most people. And this study was in the journal called Emotion. And it found that people who were more aware of their thoughts and their emotions were less impulsive and less affected by those rewards or bribery, as you call them, and, they were, and even less responsive to positive feedback. Now, these would probably be called your analytical types or less impulsive. And what they did is the researchers recorded brain activity through an EEG. They did some different tasks on a computer. What the study found was not only were mindful individuals less responsive to rewarding feedback, they are also shown less difference in neural response to neutral versus rewarding feedback. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? Basically, there's some individuals that are very impulsive, like you know, people that are prone to be addicted to gambling, that are quick to, to anger versus those we'll call analytical, that are always thinking things through. They're more in touch with their emotions and their feelings. One thing that you need to understand with rewards is that there's diminishing returns. Some people don't care about the rewards. Some people aren't, as we talked about before, with scarcity and psychological reactants. Some people aren't affected by that, and you need to adapt. And anytime you deal with rewards, you have to realize, like I mentioned, there are diminishing returns. Meaning if you give an end-of-the-year bonus, people are going to start expecting that and expecting more. Uh, a university I've worked at every year during December, they'd give us a turkey. 
All right, thanks for that. One year they didn't have enough money, so they gave us a book. Know anything about working at a university? The last thing you need is another book because everybody gives you a book, but people got upset for this gift. Even with elementary school kids, they're not reading. They're not reading. What should we do? I know if they read, we'll give them pizza. And you give them pizza and they read, but now they won't read without the pizza. I can do countless studies here. So there's two lessons here. Be careful of rewards. It's very easy to persuade with reward or incentive, as bribery as you called it. Remember those have diminishing returns. And also, it depends on the personality. If it's someone that's really in tune to their thoughts and their emotions or more analytical, the rewards don't work as well. That scarcity does not work as well. This is where we really need to key in and understand that we need to persuade others how they want to be persuaded. Mm. Well, I won't read without pizza. That's how I want to be persuaded. So <laughs> I shouldn't be handing that out to everybody. That's right. You need to have your pizza and your chocolate and your <laughs> soda or it's never going to happen. That's right. So the, the more educated somebody is, the, the less likely they are to respond to incentives. Do we take that from this or did I misread that? It could be educated. I think it would be more that person that's more contemplative. And that could be an educated person that's more in touch with those feelings, those emotions. They're really thinking through what you're saying. They tend to be more analytical. That's the type of person that's not going to jump the gun and run to the back of the room or fall for the lame scarcity techniques or the ones that will say, hey, I'll give you this if you do this. They're going to weigh those options more versus the immediate reward. They're going to think about the long-term consequences. You'd be better off than focusing on building the value of your product instead of those kind of exterior incentives, so to speak, that are designed to create action. Exactly. You're focusing more on the questions, being a consultant, and focusing on the return on investment, the long-term benefits of what you're offering. I see. So there you have it. If you're dealing in an industry like that, you've probably already figured this out. But if you haven't, if you're selling software or some kind of a complicated product to businesses that are people that are less likely to be emotional, and it may be people who are purchasing managers or something, and it's not their money. They're spending the business's money. They're going to be having to suffer consequences if they invest in a product that is bad down the road. So a short-term incentive, that just isn't going to do it for them. And it could be part of the profession, too. I've done a lot of training for internal auditors. Okay, that's a lively bunch. That's well, exciting. sometimes. <laughs> but that's the type of group, and there's no right or wrong here that's going to think it through a little bit more, a little more analytical. What are the consequences? What are we thinking through? How is this going to work? Return on investment more than a salesperson or a marketer or somebody that's more in an industry, that interactive touch or the people person touch. Yeah, uh, that's that's interesting to hear. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, if, if it's an analytical product, if it requires a lot of thought going into it, people have to understand it. Don't waste your time on those incentives. Build value in the product so that the, after the fact, people are happy they did it. And that's really along lines of the main subject of today's episode, a concept that some people might call pain. If anybody's ever had sales training, a lot of times they'll say, you've got to find the prospect's pain. You've got to find what their motivation is. And anybody that's done that to any degree of success knows that when you hit the pain, when you find that sore spot, you create so much more action than the vomiting of features and benefits like so many persuaders do. But it is more complicated than that. And Kurt, you've done a lot of work on this, on pinning down what that pain really is psychologically and everything that's happening in the prospect's mind. And you've called that the law of dissonance. 
what what is that? Can you explain what that means? Well, you're right as far as building that pain, but when you build too much pain, strange things happen. What dissonance is is there's a discrepancy between what they believe or what they've committed to versus what they're doing. And when that happens, there's that psychological tension. There's almost a rubber band stretching, and people cannot live with that tension, and they need to come up with reasons why it was okay for what they said or what they did or, or what they didn't do. For example, if a friend says, hey, help me out. I want to lose weight, and you come home, and they've polished off 12 Krispy Kreme donuts, and you say something, you better duck. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because you've probably stretched the rubber band a little too far. The key concept here you really need to understand is that the human brain needs to be right. For example, let's do a little dissonance here. All the listeners, the studies are in, and let me tell you what it shows, is that when you make a decision, you're right 50% of the time, and you're wrong 50% of the time. Now, as you process that, what happens? I don't know, Steve, did that stretch your rubber band? What happened when I said that? I got a little uncomfortable. I was going, I'm not wrong half the time. What are you talking about? (laughs) So you had a couple options. You could say, oh, that's interesting. I need to work on that, Kurtz, right? You could say, no, that can't be true. Not for me. That might be true for other people. I'm smarter than most people. (laughs) So when I say something like that, and I made up that statistic, by the way, so you don't have to feel bad. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) It's easier for people to amend their beliefs or adjust their thoughts and prove to them why it was okay than to admit they're wrong. That is cognitive dissonance. So you believe that you're a good person, that you're a charitable person, and you're flipping through the channels late at night, and then, oh, oh, there it is, children out of Africa or South America, and for less than a cup of coffee a day, you could help them out. That rubber band stretches. You should help. You should give back. You're a charitable person. And then what happens to most people in this situation, you think? I always say, that's a con. It's just going to some executive at the charity. I'm not really helping out the starving kids in Africa. Exactly. That rubber band stretches, and you're changing the channel. Like, oh, it's a scam. It's a con. Oh, I give to another charity, so that's okay. Doing this, and I'll give to a charity tomorrow. We've come up with reasons why it's okay. And you have to understand your prospect is doing this all the time and you have to be able to read this distance you want to gently stretch that rubber band and help them persuade themselves number one and number two if you stretch it too far it'll snap and it'll come back to haunt you so the human brain needs to be right in fact given my college students an exercise a group project to really get into dissonance and try to test it out so this one group does a little research they figure out that about 97% of all people believe their belief is they should wash their hands. So, Steve, let me ask you, do you think that's what actually happens? Well, you're talking about washing their hands after the bathroom? Yeah. Oh, uh, I am skeptical that it's happening 97% <laughs> of the time. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's not happening. So these students camp out in the university library bathroom to catch people, male and female, who did not wash their hands. So they would catch somebody, follow them out into the hallway, and say, wait, stop, you forgot to wash your hands. Now, do you think that stretched the rubber band a little bit? Yeah, I don't imagine many people turned around and said, you know what, you're right. I will go wash my hands now. (laughs) It's easier for them to amend their belief or come up with some reason why it wasn't their fault than to say they were wrong. And you're exactly right. Some people would... Say, wait, stop, pervert, security, there's someone watching me in the bathroom, which, of course, (laughs) is kind of attacking the person, which we see quite a bit. Some people say, oh, I have hand sanitizer. Other people say, well, 
Some one person said, "Well, my professor said the germs are so strong that it doesn't matter anymore." No, you just wash your hands before you eat, and of course we know that's not true. But people will come up with reasons why it was okay, and you really need to be able to read yourself and read other people when it comes to distance. It's great to stretch that rubber band, but if you stretch it a little too far, they're going to come after you. So they view you as the source of the dissonance, which is basically, I guess, psychological pain almost to a degree. And so they think that, hey, if I demean this person, if I make them look bad or if I discredit them, that makes me feel better. That relaxes the rubber band and I don't have to, to deal with this cognitively anymore, correct? Exactly. The human brain needs to be right. And if I can find someone else that's make it their fault and blame them, it makes it work. Abraham Lincoln said that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. We've heard that before. We like to argue. We like to win the argument. But you have shut the door to persuasion and influence because you proved that they're wrong. And it's fun to do, but you've lost your ability to truly influence that person. Yeah, try that in a marriage, right? Prove the other person wrong. (laughs) Good, fun to do for the short term, but there's long-term consequences. Yeah, wait till you get the bill. Exactly. So basically in a persuasive atmosphere, maybe you're selling business to business or to individuals, you're trying to get that rubber band stretched. You're trying to create that gap or at least make that apparent to them that this is how you want to live your life. This is how you want to conduct your business. My product shows that you are not doing that to the best that you can. You could be better, or there's a gap there between reality and what they believe they are. And that's what stretches that out. I mean, what are some of the ways that we can can get people feeling this dissonance, feeling that rubber band stretch so they feel that internal pressure to make a change? You brought up a good key point that there's that gap from where they want to be versus where they are. And a lot of times they're in denial. They don't even realize that they're a lot farther than they think. The key factor in helping somebody persuade themselves is let them find out for themselves through a series of questions and help them see that if they don't change, there's going to be negative consequences. If somebody's home going to foreclosure, you deal with real estate. So when a home goes into foreclosure, let me ask you this. Do they feel that it's their fault? Most of the time, they do not. They've got no. somebody to blame. There's a bad guy behind the curtain somewhere. Government, the taxes, employer, mean Uncle Frank won't loan them the money. And we know it's their fault, but in their mind, it's not. And so it might be just a series of questions. Well, what got you there? Well, how did that happen? What did you do with that? Okay, then you stretch the rubber band. So let's say you find out in a month they're going to be kicked out of their house. So if we don't do anything in the next 30 days, what's going to happen? Well, I'll be out on the street. Well, how are you going to take care of your family? What about this? What's going to happen here? Stretch, stretch, stretch to the point where they realize that if they don't do something to save their home, that they're going to lose it. And, of course, after you stretch the rubber band a little bit, you provide the solution, which is your product or service. Obviously, we know that cognitively they need to relax that rubber band. They can't not do it. I believe I've heard you say that Professor Festinger at Stanford University before, he's the one that came up with the theory of cognitive dissonance, that you mentally have to address the gap. Nobody walks around just saying, hey, I have this huge gap there, I have this pressure, and I'm okay with it, (laughs) right? Exactly. They can't live with it. They have to do something about it. Leon Festinger proved that time and time again with various studies as People cannot live with that. They will find a reason why it was okay. They might admit that they were wrong and need to change, but they have to do something psychologically 
because they cannot live with that psychological tension. Okay, great. We've cleared that up. And my observation over the years has been that people will typically use the path of least resistance to clear that up. Whatever is easiest, whatever is the quickest way to relax that rubber band, that's what they're going to do. Or do sometimes they get past that and they go for something that's a little harder. That's exactly it. Our brain likes the path of least resistance. That's why we're creatures of habit. And we come up with things that at the time make perfect sense. But as we analyze, we're like, what? What happened? What's going on? A perfect example is this. Is I have a belief that you shouldn't eat after 7 o'clock at night and you should exercise every day. Right? That's a belief a lot of people have. And I'm really good about that. But then you go on vacation. Guess what happens to that belief? Oh, man. That thing is hammered. Now, I have to amend that belief. Remember, it's easier to amend a belief than it is to admit you're wrong. So I say, okay, I'm going to go on a cruise. So that's what, seven meals a day, right? Seven meals a day on a cruise. So what do you think some of the top things that could go through my mind to get me to eat as much as I want without feeling guilty or dissonance? Well, you can uh, work it off later. You're on vacation. I'm on vacation. I'll work it off later. I've paid for this food, and if I don't eat it, they're going to throw it away. I've even lost five pounds before a cruise, so I would break even, right? <laughs> you are sad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, that's how we are. Now, here's what happened. So I go to Bermuda with my wife, a beautiful island. I was speaking on the ship, and it was a lot of fun. We went to shore. We came back. It was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was changing my clothes, and my wife saw, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to get something to eat, right? You're on a cruise. That's what you do. And she says, are you hungry <laughs> with that look? And I'm like, well, no, but we're on a cruise. She's like, well, go get something. To eat. I'm going to go work out. I'm going to go do some aerobics. I'm like, man. So I'm like, okay, I won't eat. I'll go run. I enjoy running. And they have those tracks on the top of the ship. It was a beautiful day, turquoise water, and it was what, 37 laps per mile. I don't know what it is, but it's yeah, a long it's a way around. Small track. <laughs> so I committed to myself, and I believe I keep my commitments to myself to go three miles. Not a lot, but it's a healthy thing after seven meals a day for a couple of days. <laughs> so I start running, and every time I pass the back of the ship, I. Smelled something that smelled so good. It was the hamburgers and the hot dogs and the French fries. Oh, and it just smelled so good. I'm like, no, no, can't, no. Like I said, I'd go three miles. I'm going to go three miles. And then the person, I kept going, a couple more laps, a couple more laps. And the person in front of me, I couldn't find them anymore. They had sat down and they were eating burgers and fries. Surrenders. Yeah, and like, whoa, whoa, if they could do it, I can do it. I'm like, no, no, I can't. I, I committed to myself to do this and I keep my commitments. And at the time, this made perfect sense. My wife still doesn't know this. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had 10 laps left, and I got in line, and I was still jogging a little bit. I got my hamburger and fries, and I walked the remaining 10 laps eating this hamburger, dipping my fries in ketchup because I was going to break even. <laughs> okay, <laughs> That's a classic example of amending your belief, the rubber band was stretched, and making it okay. Yeah, I think one of the biggest ways that I amend it psychologically is I just look for social proof in other people. So I've got this gap psychologically, maybe let's say it's a fitness thing. We'll continue to play off what you're saying that you only have to exercise this amount per week. New study comes out. Maybe you see something on Dr. Oz, whatever, right? That you actually need to work out this much per week to have it have effect. What do I immediately do? I'm going online. I'm looking for the forums. I'm looking for other people that are telling me that how I'm doing it is okay. 
if I can find more people that say that, then I just can completely write that gap off and I don't feel any dissonance anymore. Is that a pretty common thing for people to do? Very common. Looking for that validation. Well, Uncle Fred smoked for 90 years and he was healthy as an ox. Right. <laughs> I saw so-and-so do this. I was talking to this vegetarian and they always get on me because, you know, I should be a vegetarian. I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't that a leather jacket you're wearing? Well, <laughs> well, well, this is already dead when I bought it, so it didn't matter. I'm like, okay, right? We see this in every aspect of the game. To somebody at the supermarket, they're eating a grape. Well, isn't that stealing? Well, you have to test it, and it's okay. Or somebody texting and driving. Well, that's for other people because I'm a better driver than most. We see it every aspect of our life, whether it's our personal lives or the prospects that we're talking to. At risk of trudging into political territory, I'll stay neutral on it, but I saw this the other day. I have a friend who fancies himself to be quite libertarian in his political views. And most people know what that is, but I'll explain. Libertarian is, I need minimal government involvement in my life. That's usually more of a prevalent belief here in the United States as opposed to some of our listeners in other parts of the world where that's not something that a lot of people believe in. Well, if you've been living in a cave, then you are not aware that we've had a pretty big insurance overhaul, a health insurance overhaul here in the United States. And people call it Obamacare. I think it's correctly called the Affordable Care Act. And there's so many different opinions on it, but the consensus is it's supposed to give better access and cheaper access for health care to people. And some people will say, yes, it's absolutely going to do that. Others say, no, it's not. It's just going to make it more complicated. I'm not coming out on either side here, just trying to frame the debate that's happening. So my friend is telling me that, hey, we're shopping for insurance, we're trying to do this, and I think we're going to go to one of these health insurance exchanges and get some of this government-sponsored insurance, so to speak. And I go, well, how do you reconcile that with your political beliefs, right? Boom, there's the gap. He's libertarian, he doesn't like government, but what's he doing, right? He's going to participate in this program that he has spoken out against very frequently. And it was pretty fascinating to see him close that gap and deal with his dissonance, which was, well, if we're going to have, if we're going to have socialism, I got to pay for it in my taxes. I got to pay for it anyway. <laughs> so I might as well get the benefit from doing it. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was just a classic example of psychological dissonance. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong, but I'm talking about this on a psychological level. He had to do something. He couldn't just, sit there and go, hey, Steve has raised this point, and I'm just going to let it hang out there. Nope. He had, in his case, he had to attack it. And I've done that a lot, too. When somebody exposes dissonance in me, I've noticed that the demeaning that source and, and discrediting them is a way to make myself feel better psychologically, too. And we see it all the time, especially politics. That's major dissonance. And they've done this with Democrats and Republicans where they say, hey, it's your same party. They're going to come speak. Come listen to them. And they listen to them. Rah, rah, all excited. Like, what'd you think? Wasn't that awesome? Oh, that was great. Is this? I really believe in what they're saying. I said, well, they're actually the other party. They're opposite of you. And you watch them backpedal. All oh, this and that. And it's just impossible. Well, the other side can't have anything good or important to say. It has to be evil and wrong. Again, both parties are guilty, but that's dissonance 101 when you look at political parties. Yeah. Wow. So, if you had to give one or two tips that people can run away with, because we could give them 50, 
but then they're going to be drinking from the fire hose. One or two things that the average persuader could apply right away to get better results, better use dissonance, what would they be? Well, we've just scratched the surface of dissonance. We can go a lot deeper. But if there's one takeaway here, let's give you a couple. Is that first of all, the human brain needs to be right. Don't back them into a corner, even though it's a lot of fun for you. Number two, when someone's in denial, your goal is to help them persuade themselves. You be the consultant. You ask the questions. Lead them down that path to help them realize they're in trouble, that there's a bigger difference between where they are and where they need to go, and if they don't make changes, there'll be devastating consequences. And then from there, you can stretch that rubber band, build a little pain, and then offer your product or service as a solution. So if there's one thing to work on this week, practice your questions, lead them down that road, help them discover for themselves, yeah, I've got an issue, i got a problem, I've got some pain, I need to take some action. And what do you know? What you're providing is going to solve that problem for them. That's a really good point because if you back them into the corner, if they perceive you as, as the person that's creating this dissonance and you're creating that discomfort in them, the most natural human response sometimes call that the amygdala hijack, right? That part of the brain that mm-hmm. that assesses a threat. They're going to assess you as the threat. <laughs> so you're not going to be the decision that they choose, but if they realize it on their own, and now, hey, here you are with a solution, you're on their team. You're not posing yourself as a threat. And I've I've seen that many times in my career where a salesman has created some dissonance within me and I didn't like the way they did it. They made me mad. They, whatever. I experienced that amygdala hijack and funny enough, I'm buying the very product they wanted to sell me from a competitor a few months down the road (laughs) because that competitor wasn't the one that made me mad, but that guy did them a huge favor. And I think that's what happens when we get these lay down sales. Sometimes Kurt, we've all had those where somebody just calls you out of the blue or you get a sale, you're just going, that was too easy. A lot of times it's because another persuader has already done all the heavy lifting, already done all the work, but they made the prospect mad. And so they're coming to somebody else and they're ready to buy. That happens a lot. And that's a good point about the amygdala. Sometimes we just feel all these emotions, this rush, that it goes back to our animal instincts. I was at this lake and this young baby moose came in. It was a really small lake, and oh, baby moose, it's so cute. We're doing this. Everyone's surrounding the lake, taking pictures, more people, more people. Then all of a sudden, this baby moose was surrounded, and you could guess what happened. Oh, that wasn't pretty. No, and it just charged. It's that fight or flight type thing, and we see it all the time. And people don't realize that it's happening, but it happens, and that's probably a great cause for all these laydowns. You're like, wait a minute, that was too easy. They were ready to go, and they called me. I'd never talked to them before. And that's a big case, which is the law of connectivity is we buy from people we like. Yeah, it happened to me the other day. Somebody came to me, wanted to buy some investment property in Atlanta, Georgia. And as I got talking to them, I found that, yeah, sure enough, a few months ago, they got very concerned about their retirement, that this particular person was really worried about inflation. They wanted to own some real assets. And that's, of course, what I what I help people do. And they had had kind of a rough experience with somebody who does what I do in Atlanta. And so they were totally sold on the idea, but totally turned off to this other person. So a lot of the work had already been done and they came to me and I was consultative in my approach and they liked me really quick and it was super easy. Usually what takes quite a while was a pretty quick sales cycle. So uh, thank you, mystery salesperson, for (laughs) all your hard work and Unfortunately, I don't know where to find you, so I'll just hold on to all the money myself. 
There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're going to have to do another episode at least on dissonance because there's so much more that we could get into. We'll probably uh, tune this up a little bit next week and get into some more dissonance. What do you think? Oh, yeah. We could dive a lot deeper, give some more solutions. We got to get into FITD and all some different things that come from distance, getting the commitments, getting the yeses, all these things are very important to understand. We could spend many more episodes on this, but at least one more. Okay, we'll do it. We'll do another episode on dissonance next week. Stay tuned, everybody. We'll get into some more stuff that Kurt had mentioned there because, wow, it's, it's dissonance is like the leverage of persuasion. You get so much done so much faster, kind of like personality types. Dissonance is another version of that in the fact that Wow, you just cover so much ground where other people are banging their head against the wall using these old school approaches. So we'll definitely cover that. Oh, there's a new sound, Steve. What does that mean? Well, that means that we've got some listener mail, huh? Like ah, our. There we go. We're finally getting around to it. Not that we're trying to ignore anybody, but we just got to slowly implement these things. And our cheesy segue will no doubt leave the listeners clamoring for more. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, we do have some listener mail that does not pertain to Dwight Howard jerseys from China or other really spammy buy your pharmaceutical online stuff, although it does have to do with pharmaceuticals, believe it or not. So this is a good one. This is uh, from Rob in Longmont, Colorado in the uh, Denver area. I think Longmont's in the Denver area. I'll go ahead and read his email here because this is pretty good. People deal with this kind of question all the time, especially if you sell a product where you've got government regulations or bureaucratic regulations in your way. If it's bureaucratic, it doesn't necessarily have to be the government. You know, we have large companies that can become very bureaucratic. But uh, Rob says, hi guys, I'm a pharmaceutical rep by trade. I have a question. Many healthcare providers have started forcing doctors to not be allowed to see reps like me during business hours because they feel it's causing schedule backlogs and due to some corruption issues that have surfaced. And who knows what else? How can I get doctors' attention better if I can't even call on them in person? Any advice? Love the show. Thanks again, Rob. So Rob, his job, he's pharmaceutical sales rep, goes around to doctors' offices. He's got to get in front of the doctor and say, hey, we've got this new drug and it's really great because... And the idea is to get the doctors to prescribe these drugs. And that's why when you go to the doctor, you get samples. In fact, one of these guys saved me a lot of money the other day. I got samples of some very expensive eye drops that I didn't have to get a, a prescription. So I think his <laughs> that sales guy kind of backfired. I didn't have to get his product at all, but I'm sure it pays off. But the problem here is, and I've heard of this, Kurt, that, okay, some of these healthcare providers, typically it's a big hospital that the doctor may work for they may start coming down on how these doctors can spend their office hours. And one of the ways they're controlling that is, hey, look, you can't see these reps anymore. It's causing backlogs on the schedule. And probably in 2006, I heard a lot about this happening where these guys were just giving insane incentives or bribes like we talked about. And so doctors were making decisions on what drugs they would prescribe to their patients based on who gave them the best golf membership or who gave them the coolest car. It was very corrupt. So I think this is in response to that to a degree as well. But what do you do there, Kurt? You can't even get in to see your prospect face-to-face. -face. What are some of the solutions? Let's uh, see if we can help out Rob over there in Colorado. 
find a new job. Uh, no, Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening. <laughs> there you go. Just find a new job. Enjoy well, flipping burgers. <laughs> well, there's been a lot of changes. Like you said, it used to be, hey, free golf. Let's go to Bermuda. Let's do this. And it was just wide open. And they were just getting in the door all the time. They'd bring in breakfast. They could bring in lunch. They'd do all these different things to where it was easy. Now they're not even allowed to talk to them. And that goes back to really analyzing the situation to, you know, what's in it for the doctors? Is it worth it to the doctors to talk to them? And part of it's going to be the connectivity issues or relationship. Part of it's going to be are you perceived as the expert? And the doctors, you have to understand, need this knowledge, especially now that it's legal to advertise pharmaceuticals on television. Ask your doctor. And if they ask their doctor and the doctor doesn't know anything about it, then there's some credibility issues there. So if they can get to the point to where they're the advisor, they're the expert, there's a connection, there's a friend, and they can get to the point where they can explain these drugs in a way that helps the doctors with the knowledge, makes them look good. They're all looking better to the patient. They're looking better to their company. That's a different way of approaching it versus being that person that's a pest. We've talked about that before. Are you a guest? Are you a pest? Are you a pushover to where, how are you coming across? Are you just that sales rep are you the advisor that's helping out giving that knowledge and that information because if you look at it, the doctors need to know and it's easier for someone to spend five minutes to explain what the drug does versus for them to look it up and read it through and it's very complicated all the studies and they could be a very valuable advisor right right so they've got to result to some guerrilla tactics whether that's going through the mail or or other ways to get the doctor's attention so the doctor can reach out to them on his own time and that centers around you have to show the doctor that you're an expert but that that's a tricky situation for rob because we've talked about ad nauseum on the show that if you want to show somebody you're an expert the irony is the last thing you need to do is vomit out a bunch of facts about how qualified you are and how awesome you are because that has the exact opposite effect does it not It does. That's why it's important to have someone else introduce you, or there could be a referral, or there could be past history there. Another thing to think through, too, is, well, they have to eat. And if it's okay with your company, the regulations, maybe it's something you can talk over breakfast, even if maybe you're splitting the check. Or other situations where you can spend time where it's worth their time, there's a what's in it for me, it's to the point, it's concise, you're the expert. We have to look at the wrong way. Again, how are you coming across? Are you that rep that's always pushing you and that's pest? Are you that person that they enjoy being around that makes them feel good about themselves, that sees some great information? You're the guest, you're the expert, and you're teaching them things that are really helpful to them as a doctor. And I've always liked, too, charming the gatekeeper because people view these gatekeepers as somebody they have to get past. The gatekeeper's in my way. I have to get past them so I can talk to the decision maker. But that gatekeeper is with the decision maker all the time and knows the inner workings of the business. Instead of viewing the gatekeeper as somebody you have to get past, Rob, view it as somebody that you can enlist to be on your side. Because they they deal with people that are just trying to fast talk past them and pull all kinds of shenanigans. But when you can develop a relationship with them and eventually come out and say, hey, look, I know it's tough over there. You guys don't let guys like me in to see the doctor. But hey, it's my job, and I know you got a job to do too. If you were in my shoes, how would you get Dr. Jones's ear? How how would you get a fair shot? Because I know my product can help him. I know we've got a good drug. What would you do if you were in my shoes? And once you have a relationship there, the gatekeeper's now on your team. She's going, well, 
I do know that he's over here on Tuesdays at 10 o'clock, or the best time to come in would be at this time. Enlist that gatekeeper on your team, and this applies to so many different industries. If you show them courtesy, if you're good to them, do them a favor, they're happy to do it back. And that's a great point. You have to befriend the gatekeeper, and it might take you two, three, four calls to get to the point where you're able to do that. But it just boggles my mind how many old-school rookie persuaders try to bully them, or I've had this happen before, oh, I have an appointment, send me through. And I'm like, I don't have an appointment. I don't even know who this person is. And that guarantees I will never talk to that person ever in my life. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Win over the gatekeeper and list them on your side because a lot of times, too, if the gatekeeper, they're in there with the doctor, he doesn't have a lot of time. They say, hey, did you talk to that guy from XYZ Company? He's He's been pretty good. It, sometimes that's all the doctor or all the decision maker needs to hear. Oh, somebody on my staff likes him? Sold, right? And it might be just doing a little, hey, you know, I'm concerned he doesn't have the latest information on this drug, and I know he's prescribed it in the past. There are three things that I need to do. I just need five minutes of the time. Can you help me out? Giving them a good reason to have that meeting. Yeah, because it's in, the, in Rob's case, it sounds like they can't see these guys during business hours or during patient hours. So that doesn't mean there's not another time that the doctor could see you, but these guys are just so used to going in there on those regular hours. Uh, learn the inner workings, get a little more gorilla, get fancy on this, and I think you'd be successful with it, Rob. So we wish you the best of luck on that. Yeah, let us know how it goes. Yeah, yeah, send us another email. Well, cool. Kurt, uh, any parting words for the audience today? Just the main factors today. Remember the human brain needs to be right. Gently stretch that rubber band and know when you can really help people persuade themselves. It goes a long way. And realize that your default setting is to persuade people how you like to be persuaded. Adapt, adjust, learn more tools, and you will become a power persuader. Awesome. Thanks for the pointers, Kurt. Everybody, go get them, and we will see you next week. See you next week.